0: You can support the production of this podcast and get access to an ad-free version presented in high-resolution audio at clarineet.com slash support.
1: That's the ultimate goal is to go on stage and you're having pure enjoyment and reacting to everything that's happening in real time. And because of that, that's why I am motivated to practice so that I can have those moments where you're free of the technicalities and your body just takes over and your mind and spirit's able to be
0: part of the moment. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 90 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. On today's episode of the show, I'm excited to be joined by Richie Hawley, who is a versatile and critically acclaimed artist who ranks among the most distinguished clarinetists of his generation. We talk about what it was like playing with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, his time currently teaching at Rice University, and also some really interesting stories, including what it was like getting kicked out of a lesson with Yehuda Galad back in the day when he was studying with him. and happened to be, amazingly, his first clarinet teacher when he was really young, at the age of nine, I believe. And also he shares a fascinating story about his most memorable a musical experience at the end of the podcast in the lightning round this episode's almost like one of those clickbait articles you gotta listen all the way to the end to find out the amazing <laughs> story but i'll give you a preview now he managed to go to a concert of uh conducted by bernstein of one of his favorite pieces chike six so obviously quite exciting in itself but he sat in front of none other than michael jackson which is a uh, Really amazing story, and I have no idea how this could have come up any other way than here on the Clarinet Podcast, where we get to hear some really, really interesting and uh, personal and insightful stories shared from from wonderful guests uh, from all around the world. So thank you so much, Richie, for coming on the show and sharing all this amazing, amazing uh, uh, information and stories with the Clarinet audience. So, I just have two quick announcements before we get started for today. Uh, The first one is, I really want to apologize, especially to the Patreon backers, that there was no episode released during the month of July. Um, I feel especially bad about that for those who are supporting, because you're supporting on good faith that I will take the time to produce this show. Um, But unfortunately, whether or not I do produce the show, there still are costs associated every month. Now, granted, those really aren't your concern it it is kind of my concern and i know that you're supporting so that i can produce the show so again i want to apologize for that but i also want to provide a reason um if there is one that can be justifiable and the reason is that my wife and i celebrated the birth of our first child a daughter on june 27th 2018 and although it's been absolutely incredible in so many ways uh those of you who are parents will understand it's also been immensely busy and has been quite an adjustment of uh you know, scheduling and time management and, and those sorts of things. So I'm getting back to it now. And I really look forward to getting the whole bank of episodes that I've been storing up for months now back out into the world. And uh, I've even got some new things planned. I'm hoping to do a series on like financial wellness for musicians and, and uh, various things like that in the fall. And if you have any guest requests or, or anything like that or any ideas, even just to say hi, I'd love it if you'd send me a message at feedback at clarineat.com. The second announcement sort of is related to the first one, It involves the book club, um, which you might think sort of just evaporated. But, uh, you know, I had scheduled to talk to the author of Inner Game of Music two days after my daughter was born. <laughs> so that was not the best idea. So we delayed that conversation. Uh, hopefully we're going to connect a few weeks at the end of August here, and then that conversation will air Uh, sometime in September, if all goes well. If you do have thoughts about the book, well, first of all, thank you for reading along. Thank you for taking the time to take part in the book club. It's not dead. It's still coming. Um, But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Share a voicemail with me by heading to clarinet.com, scrolling down all the way to the bottom. There's a little contact section. You can click leave a voicemail and you've got 90 seconds to tell me what you loved about the book, what you didn't love about it, uh, how it's maybe changed your musical practicing or anything like that. So, Looking forward to hearing from you, and please do share your thoughts. I uh, there's thousands of people listening to this show all over the world, but only several, you know, per episode will take the time to actually uh, get back to me. And I'd I'd really do I really do love to hear from everyone. Um, it's so satisfying to know that, you know, not only are you enjoying the 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 content being produced, but also the the books we're reading together, and the, uh, the stories that the artists are sharing. It's, it's really great to just sort of interact with, with the audience. So again, feedback at clarineet.com. You can get in touch directly or leave me a voicemail by scrolling down to the bottom and clicking on the leave voicemail button. Today's episode of the show is brought to you in part by Dario Woodwinds and their new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't had the chance to try out D'Addario's new reserve clarinet reeds, you're really in for a treat. They're using some amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. These reeds are now available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet, and you can pick up a box at your local music store. Or, if you want to order online, you can head to clarinet.com slash reeds and buy a box right now. So I'm here today with Richie Holly. Richie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm a fan of your show.
1: I've got a, a car that just has a um, satellite subscription that's expired. So I've declined renewing
0: it and have gotten into tons of podcasts. Wow, this is hilarious. I It's always funny to me to find out who's listening. I mean, I I, I hear from, you know, college-aged students a lot or uh, high school-aged kids, but then I find out that, you know, really big-name players are are listening all over the world, too. So it's a really diverse audience. That's that's fascinating. Uh, what's your favorite episode been? I really
1: enjoyed the one uh, about the Broadway shows because that's just like a totally different world than, than what
0: I'm familiar with. So that was pretty cool. So, speaking of career options and things that people do, um, you won your first orchestral job with the Cincinnati Symphony at the age of just 23. What was that like? I had won a Charleston Symphony
1: uh, when I graduated from Curtis, and that was in uh, 1992. Charleston Symphony paid, at that time, principal clarinet, uh, was making uh, $16,700, and there were 80 people at the audition. I couldn't believe it. I was delighted to have won that job, and um, uh, I was at, at Curtis before, and all my colleagues were winning giant jobs. I, I was just delighted to have any job. Um, it wasn't as big as as my colleagues at the time, but um, I, I was determined to, to, to get get something bigger at some point.
0: So some point, though, came a year later, though,
1: did it not, with a Cincinnati job? That's right. It was uh, in the winter of uh, the following year, 1993, and then I started in 1994.
0: Does it feel overwhelming at that age to start a job like that? or
1: The, the most overwhelming part of starting a Cincinnati symphony was having to learn so much music week after week after week. And having to have reeds uh that worked week after week for for massive pieces, and um I had been at Curtis where we had different orchestra works every week, and that was just like one piece, and you had nothing else to do but practice on that and the The amount of concerts that Cincinnati was playing then and the amount of repertoire it it was dizzying and nauseating and intimidating it was it was terrifying frankly but
0: um I was determined not to screw up. <laughs> so you mentioned the reeds specifically. Is there some sort of backstory there on how you sort of figured this out or started getting more consistent reeds? Um, yeah, when I was in school, Montanaro was, uh, Donald
1: Montanaro was my teacher, and he was incredible about teaching us about reeds and cane and and uh, the story of, of where your reed comes from. And I remember in my freshman year, uh, I had a roommate, and she was Japanese, and she had these interesting Tupperware boxes that weren't like American Tupperware. They were Tupperware that kind of opened up on the side, and it was from Japan. Hmm. And so I, I, it had a divider in it. So I went home for Christmas in 1988 at the age of 18, and I drilled holes in the divider. I took a carbon filter from... Uh, the aquarium that i had put it on one side put a humidifier next to it and then put my reeds on the other side and i won't say that i, I invented that i'm sure somebody else was doing it but it, it, no one else was trying to preserve their humidity and uh, maintain a stableness with their reeds
0: uh, at that time that was not a normal thing so the carbon what effect is that having is it some sort of sterilization or is that actually holding the moisture well, the carbon, I thought at that time, at the age of 18
1: and not being very scientific about it, I thought that's going to keep it from molding <laughs> from the humidity. And I don't think it really kept it from molding, uh, but I think it absorbed excess humidity.
0: That was kind of uh, my theory. And it seemed to work. You actually have a blog post called You're Only As Good As Your Reads um, that was recently published on your website. So this is obviously something that's sort of been a, an important element through your whole career. You <laughs> thought, without a good read, you're, you might as well be playing on a plastic clarinet keeping them nowadays what do you use uh currently i use
1: japanese tupperware and i put well, still uh, you're still uh, using it i still use it but it's uh modified in the sense that i put um uh, i like the Daddario, uh reed holders that they've made recently the ones that are in different colors those are fantastic and i i keep them in there with a humidipack and obviously that's more recent technology than 1988 when i just had a, a sopping wet sponge in there
0: <laughs> which percentage of those humidipacks do you use because i i use 49 on my clarinet and then i for the reeds i think it's closer to 60 but there's there's a bunch available
1: bingo exact that's exactly what i do the same same formula
0: and so those things like do you find that they mold um if they're kept with those in the case or, or not really
1: uh no not at all those humidipacks, packs uh they they remove excess humidity and i think that's what's so great about those. Uh, humidity packs is you put a reed in there and you've just played on it. Right. And, um, one thing Montanaro taught me is like, once your, your reed warps, that's it. It's kind of game over. You can, you can bring it back, uh, from the dead a little bit, but it's not going to be like Lazarus. You know, it's not, uh, that reed is not going to be as good as it once was once it warps. And, uh, you can flatten it, but, but it, it, it if you keep it from warping it, will always have it more pure and better sound. So what I like to do is you put the reed, when you're done playing, you put it back in its sleeve, and uh, I put it in the humidity box, and of course that reed is completely saturated, right, uh, from playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, then over the course of, I don't know how long it takes, it, it slowly comes down to that uh, humidity of the box, which is, let's say, 60% or 59%. And it does it very gradually over time. It's not like uh, leaving the reeds out like some people do to dry out. Um, I see people do that, and they are the people that have more problems with their reeds than than I do. Um, people seem to think they play a reed, and then they lie them out in the open for them to dry, and uh, then they warp. Um, I had a conversation with somebody that was doing this. I said, why are you doing that? They said, well, I want them to dry. And I said, well, they're going to warp if you do that. And this individual said, yes, I want them to warp so that it gets it out of their system. I'm like, oh, man.
0: You know, I I hear a lot of people talking about trying to find the perfect case that lets the reed dry flat. And I think the problem actually is the drying part. It doesn't need to dry. And and John Mackey, who uh, invented a product that's similar to... What we're talking about here—it's called the rejuvenated. Lets the product or lets the reeds kind of uh, stay at a stable humidity. He did some scientific research, and one of the biggest things that breaks down cane is actually the wet-dry process. So if you can sort of get the reeds stabilized, you're going to get a lot longer life and a lot better performance out of them. So I think you're really onto something.
1: Absolutely, I've I've found that just works incredibly well. And the key to having good reeds is just keeping them in a consistent uh, humidity or dry environment one that's pretty much the same
0: so you've got quite an engaging blog there online and a really nice website and i want to first of all thank you for for that great website because so many players i find don't have a good online presence and and makes my job as an interviewer really hard
1: (laughs) this summer the website will get redone but uh it's going to have the same content
0: well there's a lot of great content on there and you know you also have a a wonderful youtube channel and uh I, i just wonder you know let's say looking back when you first won that orchestral job did you ever imagine? this sort of like marketing and online presence would be necessary as a musician?
1: All I was concerned with, uh, back when I started my job in Cincinnati was just being prepared for the next week there. There was no internet. There was no uh, thought of, uh, video online. There was internet, but it, it was through AOL and it was through a dial up, you know, connection. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I even remember when YouTube came out, uh, the very first thing I watched was a lion running and chasing somebody, and I thought, wow, this could be a great platform one of these days for, for video and audio, and it's it's really turned into that for a lot of musicians.
0: Absolutely, and I guess I didn't mean uh, the internet as as the only marketing tool, but, but I just imagined that playing in an or- orchestra, you know as little as 20, 30 years ago, and not to mention you know 50 to 100 years ago, was a much different experience or, or being a music, musician in general than it is today. There's so much sort of marketing and, and, and being sort of a, a figure in that way that's a part of it. Do you see that as a really important part of being a successful musician?
1: I think it's really important for the orchestral musicians of today, not just to bury their heads in the sand and do their job. Uh, they have to be the the leaders in the community to be showing um, what classical music is, what the orchestra is. And, and I loved how Cincinnati evolved from um, just being bread and butter, orchestra, 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 pops, pops, orchestra, pops, uh, youth concerts, to really uh, stepping out and being part of the community in new ways. Uh, I really have been impressed with how Cincinnati Symphony has evolved tremendously since 2008 and uh, the big global financial meltdown. It's it's made Cincinnati Symphony to be one of the top orchestras in the United States in terms of uh, income level and endowment level and uh, attendance level. It's really, they're doing incredible things in Cincinnati.
0: That is fantastic. How, as an orchestral player, do you give the same energy and passion to uh, the you know incredible masterworks, but also the Pops concerts and things, which a lot of people tend to not enjoy playing as much.
1: There was this myth that you would have a Pops concert and people would come to the Pops concert and that would bring them in and get them interested to coming to the orchestra. And they did a lot of surveys around 2000 and they discovered that the Pops audience had no desire to ever go to a symphony orchestra concert. And the symphony orchestra audience had no desire to ever go to a Pops concert. So the the crossover concept really uh, never, ever took off anywhere in the United States. So um, when you realize that, and you realize that this Pops program, which is just maybe, um, let's say, a, a musical night, right? You're doing all musicals, that this audience is still loving every minute of it. And Having an audience that is appreciating what's going on on stage is is all you can ever ask for for uh, uh, what we do in an orchestra.
0: Man, I love that. You know, I've heard the exact same argument, and people sort of say that the pop shows are going to act as some sort of gateway performance to the the bigger shows. But that's, I guess, that's kind of like saying that you know someone who goes and watches you know one rock band is going to be more likely to go to another's concert. Like they're not necessarily connected, you know. Um, That's if you're correct. a fan of Pink Floyd, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to go see Katy Perry or whatever, you know?
1: That's correct. The data shows that there's zero crossover. Zero.
0: So I guess what you're saying is why not embrace the fans that love the pop and why not embrace the fans that love classical and, and serve both audiences?
1: True. And also realizing that the pop's audience of now is not going to be the same as the pop's audience of of, of 30 years ago. Uh, and similarly, yeah. I, I I think the solution of just having a traveling movie going city to city and then the orchestra plays the charts that doesn't really get people involved in in music it just sort of says oh there here's a novel way to watch a movie
0: yeah i've seen this before they do it now with harry potter and a couple other films and they'll sort of travel around and and perform the music it almost turns the music or sorry the the movie into sort of a musical type experience it's a little bit odd I, i haven't been to one but but i uh I guess I have seen like Dracula played that way, but it was an odd experience. You're right.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm coming from the the vantage point of Cincinnati, which has always had a very uh, separate and uh, brilliantly thoughtful pops brand that that figures out what the audience wants yeah. and caters to that. Uh, most orchestras don't have that history, and most orchestras don't have the ability to do to have a, a separate creative staff that tries to work out what is going to be a new and and novel way to appeal to the pops audience or a new audience
0: yeah i think that most orchestras you know i I can't speak directly but i i I assume that they they use that pops revenue to kind of fuel the rest of the season they don't look at it as sort of two endeavors and and cincinnati does have a more much more clear division and and great marketing behind that so
1: yeah it's it was cool it was really great to be part of that that music making machine
0: so you mentioned studying with donald montanero um are there any other compelling stories about your time with him you'd like to share on the podcast?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, I think just my time at Curtis, it was uh, in, in, very different than it is now. Um, now they've got this additional building down the street, which is uh, new and impeccable. And the original building was this gorgeous old mansion. And um, I don't think many of the students practice there now. What was incredible was being in that building and feeling the pressures of the ghosts of your musical ancestors and seeing their pictures on the wall and and having to live up to a standard that they uh, dictated in that building uh, from the start of the school.
0: It's so interesting you see that because I always find that too about old spaces. I love thinking about the things that happened there and the people who walked through those walls. And anytime there's a new building, I always feel it's sort of absent. Um like the space might be technically better, but it's it's' never got the same character and energy
1: oh i i could i agree with you completely and what uh is interesting is so much of the north american uh woodwind aesthetic was founded in philadelphia um in the late thirties and early forties, and uh previously to that time woodwind sections were, were very stylized from um, a German style or, or a, a French style, and there wasn't really what is the American woodwind style. And uh, Tabiteau developed that at the Curtis Institute of Music, and there was really specific thoughts of sound and phrasing that uh, uh, permeated the Philadelphia Orchestra in those amazing years with Stakowski and then with Ormandy, and then uh, later with Mooty. And uh, during my time in the Curtis Institute of Music, the Philadelphia Orchestra Show was being led by this young 30-something guy, Ricardo Mooty, and they were just kicking butt. It was one of the most amazing-sounding woodwind sections and this lush string sound. It was, it was inspirational to hear them every week.
0: That's amazing. And just to have the chance to interact with these people must have been... Incredible, too. Let's step back a little bit further um, to when you first started studying it. Your, your bio says you started at nine. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah.
1: My dad played the clarinet. So there was a clarinet in the house. So I wanted to play music. And that's the instrument that I knew how it kind of went together and what it sounded like. And and uh, so I was attracted to that. And my dad said, OK, well, he'll contact his old teacher and um, maybe I might be able to study with him. And his teacher was Mitchell Lurie. So he looked up Mitchell Lurie in the phone book, and Mitchell answered the phone and said uh, um, that he doesn't teach beginners. Of course, my dad at this point had no idea of the fabled and legendary life and musical career of Mitchell <laughs> Lurie, and it was just a cold call, and And Mitchell said, well, uh, I don't take... Beginners, but I have a grad student that just moved here from Israel, and he needs some students, and his name was Yuda Galad, and I was one oh. of one of Yuda's uh, first students as he was a student. Yuda taught oh. me how to read music. I remember uh, he taught me how to hold the clarinet. He kicked me out of my second lesson because I uh, made a mistake that I'd made too many times, and he said... Uh, when you're principal clarinet of an orchestra, you cannot make the same mistake twice. And uh, my lesson was over, and uh, I was thinking, "What? What's a principal clarinet? What's an orchestra? Why? Why am I being fired from my lesson?"
0: <laughs> I love that he was trying to instill the responsibility of like a future career, even at the second lesson, though.
1: You know, I think it was really a, a very powerful message uh, that he was always thinking about me uh, and teaching me in the manner of someone that has to be performing. And not just, okay, learn how to play the clarinet, but how are you going to be a great performer? And similarly, uh, back to what I was saying about Curtis, when we would go to these concerts and you'd see these people that were bigger than life leave the concerts wearing... Armani suits and just having the, the world at their feet and and going home. And then they're going to come back and do it again the next day. It, it was an inspirational target. And Yuda set me up for seeing that. And Donald Montanaro set me up. You know, this is the target. This is what you, you, are, you say you want to do. This is what it's like.
0: So I don't want to dwell on this, but I'm just interested at, at the age of nine, like what was learning the clarinet like at that point? I mean, I have a young student now and I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, but it's, it's really hard for me because I started at 12 or 13.
1: It seemed really easy. So there was no mm. challenge. Uh, I think at nine, you don't know what hard is and you don't have an idea of, yeah. uh, what, what, uh, a pressure is. And that started to happen around 12 and 13 when, when I had some bigger concerts and, and, more reality performing, but at nine, I was delighted playing four or five notes just with my left hand. That was joyful for me. So I felt uh, very encouraged. Yuta made me feel in, incredibly um, uh, talented and gifted just because I played five notes correctly. It was a really rewarding lesson experience, and he was an amazing teacher even from from back then. He was he he was a. Uh, uh, a beacon of music making, and I was just so attracted to this, and I wanted to be able to think about music like he did and be able to uh feel the music like he did so it was an amazing influence and and he made such a huge impression on me.
0: what you say there about the child's learning mindset i mean that, that's so interesting because um i started a book club this this month with with Claire here, and uh the book I chose was the inner game of music, but i also i just finished reading the inner game of tennis first actually, and uh one thing they talk about is sort of trying to rediscover this this learning mindset of a child where you're not, you know, super critical and you are um, mindful of your accomplishments from a very real perspective. And and I think that's such a great thing. Do you feel that still influences you today?
1: I think the way I perform music, it's that it's that's the ultimate goal is to go on stage and you're, you're having pure enjoyment and reacting to everything that's happening in real time. And because of that, that's why... I am motivated to practice so that I can have those moments where you're free of the technicalities and your body just takes over and your mind and spirit's able to be part of the moment.
0: That's amazing. I love that. In 1988, you won a Presidential Scholar Award in a ceremony at the White House. Walk me through that day. What was that like? And, and did you actually get to beat President Reagan?
1: Yes, that was uh, the culmination of uh, the arts Week and that's a program that's founded by the uh, and run by the National Foundation for the Advancement of Arts and uh, that was a competition where you would go to Florida and it was sort of in the middle of the year like a getaway competition and music making camp and and I was one of the top prize winners for that so the top prize winners then get nominated to be a Presidential Scholar which is really mostly an academic award. Uh, but they take the top winners from the National Foundation for Advancement of the Arts uh, high school competition, and they have them do a whole application and essay essay writing, and they look at their school grades, and they go into the mix with all of these top uh, high school scholars. And so there is a a very select small pool of arts presidential scholars, an artist, a poet, uh, a couple musicians, a dancer— and then we were alongside uh, the academic uh, presidential scholars, uh, amazing high school students already working on different uh, uh, crazy physics and mathematics and chemical equations at that age. So uh, it was a great honor just to be among, among them. The Arts Week for the Presidential Scholar was an awards week, uh, and... We had a concert we played at Candy Center, and we were uh, also doing a lot of activities, meeting uh, our senators and uh, congressional representatives, and there was a, an award ceremony at the White House, and it was uh, presented by Ronald Reagan, so it was very, very memorable for, for me. And Yuda came along, Yuta Galad, because he was my teacher, and they had a special award for him as well.
0: Wow, that's amazing! So, did you actually receive the award in the White House? It was in the Rose Garden. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool! Yeah, that's a, that's amazing. What a what a sort of a life moment there. That's super fantastic.
1: It was a really wonderful week. It was um, incredibly memorable, and I'm I'm glad that I got to do my performance on the very first day, so that the rest of the week was just all fun.
0: It sounds like the influence of your past teachers was just incredible on on your life. Um, what is the one takeaway or some life takeaways that you try to instill in your students?
1: Well, I left the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, um, seven years ago to teach full time at Rice. And I had never planned on leaving an orchestra, uh, just to teach. But when I came down to Rice and, uh, and I saw the Shepherd School of Music and it's, it's ambiance, I was so impressed. And what made the biggest impact on me is it felt like a music festival all year round, except, uh, on a, on a a collegiate learning level. So I was realizing at that time that making music with your students was as important as just standing across the room and yelling at them to do this better or differently. And, um, so I try to instill uh, with my students that, that I'm not better a better musician than they are. I just have had more experience than they have, and I would like to just be a, a mentoring uh, teacher that can share my experience and help shepherd them to, to where their destiny may be.
0: So are you actually performing chamber music with your students? And
1: During during the summer at Music Academy in the West, we do a lot of uh, chamber music with the students. And uh, they're not necessarily my students. They're other students. But uh, the feeling is mutual uh, with other other studios during the summer. And at the Shepherd School of Music, it's very much the same way. We have these concerts called the Sharing the Spotlight. And it's where I'm the host or curator of a recital. And then I bring lots of different students, not just my own, uh, and we play together and work together. And it's an amazing collaborative and uh, mentoring uh, role that, that I like to have here at, at Rice.
0: You know, that's so smart because I, I, th- I think back to two memories from my university days. And uh, interestingly enough, the, these experiences probably taught me more than, you know, hours and hours of instruction would have, but there was one concert I played with a new music ensemble and we had these two fantastic instructors. Uh, one was a pianist and, and one was a violinist and uh we were really short on people, so they decided to play in on a couple of the pieces for the concert with us and uh just watching them interact and watching them perform and it was like, oh, that's how it's done. And it was such a wake-up moment as a young player, so I think that's fantastic.
1: Oh, for sure. There's there's nothing like seeing the person that that uh is is telling you what to do. There's nothing like seeing that person across the stage from you or sitting next to them, and, and yeah, it's not that just that that teacher is delivering the goods, but they're showing what the word more means, what is really loud, what is really soft, what, what is that level of expression that, that this person was telling me to do? Ah, I hear it, I hear it,
0: I, I hear this, this, what he or she is doing across the stage. Powerful. And I think the across the stage part is so important, because there's a total difference between, you know, just a faculty recital and actually sitting down and playing chamber music with with your instructors in this way,
1: oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, it's transformative, wonderfully.
0: H- how large is your studio? Uh,
1: eight students, eight clarinet students.
0: Oh, that's quite a modest size, actually. That's that's wonderful. So you must be a lot of one-on-one attention then.
1: Yeah, it's it's why I was attracted to this school. It's very much like a music festival year-round. I'm I'm there interacting more than just a lesson
0: well, I hear of some of these schools in the states and you know I'm from Canada, so things are much smaller up here but but I do hear of you know thirty to sixty students in a studio so i'm really I'm really surprised and impressed by that
1: yeah well i i I think that that can that can work too but nothing is as good as being around your teacher several days a week in multiple musical situations, not just in a
0: lesson you, you've been praised for your for having a seamless tone that so many clarinetists long for, but few can achieve by the Cincinnati Inquirer. What is the secret? And how do you instill your sense of the clarinet's tone and sound in your in your students? Well,
1: I I attribute that to a combination of what I learned from Yuda Galad and from Donald Montanaro. Yuda really was uh, a huge influence on on singing through the instrument, getting the instrument to be like your voice, and combined with tremendous amount of of work on just air production. So by the time I was 13 or 14, using a whole lot of air was second nature. Uh, the next level in, in my development was when I went to Curtis and Montanaro for, uh, better or for worse. I like to think it was for, one of the greatest things in my life, but at the time it felt miserable. M- Donald Montanaro had me just doing intervals for, uh, three months intervals and scales really slowly to try to connect the notes and play between the notes and the legato that he had it was it was like candy it was candy i wanted i would hear him demonstrate and it would be the smoothest sound and i just oh, i wanted it so much and and i i hated having to just play intervals but i knew that i was getting better and better so Getting that smooth sound and getting that legato was uh, just from uh, having Donald Montanaro demonstrate what that really sounds like, and then helping me to to achieve that just with basic intervals and scales.
0: And so, to what extent do you think that you mentioned reeds being like of pivotal importance? Yes. Um, obviously, we're talking about now the airflow and, and the person person element of it, but do you think that? The gear makes the player, or does the player make the gear? I know it's kind of a broad question, but in this context,
1: I think that that a great read is more essential than anything. Uh, second to that is having um, that read handshake and partner with the mouthpiece. And it's not mm-hmm. as simple as as just saying, "All right, I should be playing on a three and a half read." Well, what what variety of read? What model read? What style mouthpiece you're playing on? I mean, there's more to it, and just than just getting a good read. It's getting that handshake. Obviously, having great air support is is better, more important than than just buying the best new gadget, gizmo, ligature mouthpiece. Uh, without good air support, you can't do anything.
0: So, read air support. Those are the two kind of pinnacle.
1: I think re- you know having a really having the right read, having the right read, the right strength is, is essential. Having a read that responds is essential. Uh, I would rather have a read that responds than the one that has the most beautiful sound ever, because when that conductor gives that downbeat, you've got to be playing that, that, that spot, you know? Um, of course you want the read that that responds and has a great sound, but for, for me, having that response is the most essential thing. for for example, what are you gonna do when you gotta play the cuckoos in Mala One at the very first page and your read doesn't respond? You can't you can't adjust your read. You can't wave a sign to your to the audience and say, My my read's no good. This read is bad. Please forgive yeah. me because the cuckoo's sick today. No, everyone wants to hear those cuckoos.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's not a forgivable thing.
1: No, there's no, there's have no. Read, you've so. got to have that response, and um, you know, ideally you have a great responding read, and um, uh, that has a great sound. But I get back to what y- Yuda taught me, which is having that great air support. Because if you have a really great air production and great air support, you can sometimes get by with a less than perfect read.
0: I want to ask about your new some of your new videos on the YouTube channel here. Um, you have one up of an Ervo Parrot piece called Fratris. Yes. And, um, yeah. it's a great performance by the way, but it says that it's produced by you. So are you kind of moving into video production now as well? Or? Oh, I've
1: done video production for ages. Uh, I actually, it, it's a spinoff. I had a photo business that I ran in Fiji for a couple of years. And, um. Oh, very cool. And then, uh, when YouTube started taking off, I, I, I used my knowledge of, um, photography into going into producing classical music uh, videos for a string quartet, and then for some friends, and then for myself. And the the parrot video that's on my YouTube channel is actually from an a ensemble that we have called the Rogue Ensemble, and it's it's kind of still in its fledgling stages and getting off the ground, but I, I wanted to throw that on my own YouTube channel because that was a a, a production that I was very, very proud of. Um, the the audio and recording that, and um, then the whole editing and producing the video and filming it too.
0: So we've got orchestral player, chamber musician, professional educator, video producer, photographer. What else can you do?
1: <laughs> you know, I I uh, since I've moved to Texas, I've gotten into smoking meat and vegetables. <laughs> yep, I've got a smoker, and that's my my uh, true culinary. Uh, hobby is sitting in the back tending the fire of the smoker even though it's a pellet smoker you know just being adjusting it and and getting everything right i just i love it really good i, I love cooking
0: Maybe we can expect smoked reeds in the future
1: ha ha you know if that could make them better uh i would always do that you know there's the, i'll tell you this this is what i love about daddario is that they listen and and if i were to uh say hey i did this experiment with my reads and I I ran them through the smoker and, uh, it made them better. They would look into that. And that's not just because I'm an artist. They really listen. Uh, I, I switched from another brand and part of the reason that I switched was that I I was finding some issues or some things I I knew could make their reads better. And there was nobody listening to me. And, uh, I just wanted to share my knowledge and experience, and there wasn't an ear that said, please tell us, let's see what we can do, because um, you seem to know what you're talking about. And and that just never happened, and, and D'Addario reached out, and they said, what do you think of this? How could this be better? Um, and I was seeing what D'Addario was doing with other parts of uh, the musical landscape, uh, not just with woodwinds, but with Uh, guitar strings and percussion, and it was clear to me that Daddario was an innovative company that wanted to make musicians' lives better.
0: Which strength of reed and which uh, of their styles are you playing on?
1: I use the uh, Reserve Classic, and I play on the three and a half reed. And on my mouthpiece, I'm actually in the middle of developing with them a new mouthpiece. We're almost to the beta test phase. It's it's juicy. And it's it's going to be a game changer. Can you share any
0: hints about what that might be like? I
1: can. I will tell you this much. Um, what is interesting in the pro- has been interesting in the development of this mouthpiece is uh, traditionally, when when people make a mouthpiece, they say, "Here's the blank. Um, let's <clears throat> let's get a facing, and let's try this facing, that facing." and they do it by hand and then do it by machine or whatever. Uh, What we did is we started with a a general facing that would work with a a three-and-a-half reed, and then we started experimenting with internals in a way and in a manner that you could never do with a molded mouthpiece. And with a molded mouthpiece, uh, which is like most mouthpieces are molded out of a mold, like a Zinner blank is a molded mouthpiece. Uh, it's very different than one that is machined by a CNC machine, which is what Dodario does. So we are in the middle of finalizing some dimension changes on the inside, and we're talking, uh, I get a sample where there's four mouthpieces, and the difference of one Mysterious spot on the inside is 0.004 or 0.005 or 0.006. I mean, these microscopic numbers, like the th- the thickness of a piece of paper where we can add material or take away material with, with the design process. So it's this is a game changer mouthpiece because we started with the basic facing and then we're doing internals, 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 more internals, more internals, and we're about done with that and going to revisit the facing to just get it all cinched up and perfect.
0: Another example of, you know, technology and music kind of working hand in hand to improve things and, and allow, you know, further musical expression. I think that's just fantastic.
1: It's, it's incredible uh, being able to, to work with the design team of engineers with the Dario because uh, a lot of them have an aerospace machining background and they approach wow. a problem so much differently than a musician. And uh, I can say, I need the sound to be reflecting off this part of the baffle onto this part of the ramp in a different manner. And we scratch our heads, and, and they come up with a, a solution for this. And so we, we change the shape of the internals, thing after thing, just microscopically, <laughs> and it's incredible incredible what a difference in the sound it makes uh incredible even even uh, it's obvious you know you're changing how the the sound is vibrating the the cathedral that 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 sound first gets its vibration to sing in you know and it's been a tremendously educational and wonderful experience for me
0: definitely look forward to trying that mouthpiece is there a, a time frame on its release and, and will it be a signature model like we'll have your name on it
1: no no I don't i i think that's i can honestly say the last thing i would ever want is a Richie Holly mouthpiece because I, <laughs> this mouthpiece is a mouthpiece that is not about me. It's about what I believe is uh, needed in the market. A mouthpiece that responds like a, a very close facing mouthpiece, but that has the depth of sound of a, uh, you know, a, a, a more open mouthpiece. And I, I know, and we have it, we've got it almost, almost finished, you can have that sort of response from an open mouthpiece. You don't have to have an open mouthpiece that feels like you're you're pushing a, a, a huge amount of air just to get some response.
0: I think this is a relatively new but very welcome phenomenon. Um, a lot of players, myself included, have have gone towards more open mouthpieces and, and slightly softer reeds. Um, but a previous generation and my teacher especially, I remember him pushing me towards very closed mouthpieces, very very hard reeds, and and a lot of it was a lot of work just to get a sound.
1: Sure. Um, yeah,
0: I think it's great that the the freedom to play is is taking precedence over over that sort of tension.
1: My first mouthpiece was a Mitchelluri mouthpiece, and ironically made by Rico back back in the day. And it was a very very open mouthpiece uh, and a very um, resistant mouthpiece. It had a lovely rich sound, but boy, it was impossible to get it to respond well. And uh, I went to Curtis and. Right away, I was switched onto a very close-facing mouthpiece and a Blue Box Van Dorn three-and-a-half reed. And boy, I struggled with the reeds, and I struggled with the mouthpiece, but it, it really taught me a lot and got got a, a, a sound into my ear that was with a very centered, responsive core. So when I left Curtis, I played on a close-facing mouthpiece on my Henry Shedville for most of my time in the orchestra, and towards the end, I switched to an open mouthpiece and um, have really been experimenting over the last decade with various uh, open mouthpieces. And now finally have, have dialed in exactly what I am looking for in an open mouthpiece. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think so many people have changed their perspective and are moving towards an open mouthpiece and don't know what to play on. Um, there are some things that are have a wonderful sound but they're inflexible and that's what i loved about a closed facing mouthpiece it's responsive and it's flexible open mouthpieces are less responsive traditionally and less flexible but this mouthpiece is going to be a, a combination of both
0: well i definitely look forward to trying that out and uh i thank you for sharing those amazing information about that on the podcast here
1: oh i i'm i'm excited for everyone to get their hands on this the we did an alpha test and that came back very, very positive. And the changes that we made based upon uh, what everybody needed to have changed, uh, we've achieved all those things and we're, we're getting ready to send out the beta test very soon.
0: Thanks for sharing those details about that mouthpiece. I definitely look forward to trying it out. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for the lightning round. I'd like to take a moment to thank the 33 backers we have on Patreon who are currently supporting the show so that thousands of other clarinetists all around the world can listen for free. Now, if you're not in a position where you're currently supporting the show on Patreon, that's okay. I do appreciate the fact that many people do want to listen for free, and I think many people who, for example, can't afford it should have the option to listen for free, absolutely. Um, But I'd like you to do two things this week. Now, the first thing is, as soon as you get to your next rehearsal, your hand touches your clarinet... I want the first thought to pop in your head to be, hmm, is there anyone around here that I could tell about the clarinet podcast? Now, of course, I'm talking about clarinet players. Don't walk up to the percussion section and start singing the praises about the clarinet podcast, because honestly, they're probably not going to want to listen. But I know that there's a lot of clarinet players out there in the world who probably aren't listening, but probably could get value from the show. And honestly, building the audience worldwide, getting to as many clarinet players as possible is one of the ultimate goals of this, so that these stories that are being told on here can sort of reach the ultimate uh, realization, which would just be so great. But the second thing is, I want you to think about the last time you took a clarinet lesson and what the cost of that lesson was and the value that you sort of gleaned from that lesson. I'm assuming that you paid 50 to to $100 for the lesson and you probably got a ton of value because your teacher is probably amazing and you're probably studying at a you know fantastic facility and, and all those great things. But clarinet comes on two to four times a month for one to two hours, right? Um, what is the value of those two to four or eight hours of content in your life as a clarinet player? And is that content worth as much as a single minute of lessons with your teacher? Now, I'm willing to concede that your teacher might be absolutely amazing and there's no way that eight or 10 or 50 hours of clarinet could even compete with a single minute of their lessons. But we've had some of the greatest clarinet players in the world on this show. Corrado Giuffretti, Martin Frost, Ricardo Morales, Richie Hawley today. I believe that there's enough value in here that clarinetists listening all over the world can get at least $1 to $2 of value per month and would feel comfortable contributing that amount of money towards the production of the podcast to ensure that I can do it into the future. So anyways, I want you to think about that. What is the value of this podcast in your life as a clarinetist? Does it compete with one to two minutes of your teacher's time? And would you be willing to support the show at that level? As a thank you for your support, you'll get access to an ad-free, high-resolution version of the podcast, which I call the Gold Edition. And you can do this at clarinet.com support. Thanks so much, and let's get on to the lightning round with Richie Holly. So, what is something that you do every day that you feel contributes most to your success?
1: I check my reads and I get rid of the ones that are old and crappy.
0: <laughs> Ooh, that's the hard part. I have a big box of reed graveyard. I guess you don't have that.
1: My reed, reed graveyard is yeah, it's they, no, they don't even a stay around. Can. My my reads just will go go in the trash once they've expired.
0: You're stronger than I. <laughs> What is your all-time favorite can't live without Clarinet Accessory? What is your all-time favorite can't live without Clarinet Accessory?
1: My Mark Jacoby Custom number 7 barrel.
0: If you could redo any aspect of your musical career, um, which would it be and why?
1: I would uh reattend Pacific Music Festival when I went. Uh, was it was the first year of Pacific Music Festival. And let's just say I, I I was rather hot-headed then. I, I think uh, I have a cooler <sighs> cooler brain for stressful situations now.
0: What is one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were 21?
1: I wish I knew how much fun it is to practice.
0: Oh, I love that. What piece of music, album, or performance changed your life most profoundly?
1: Hearing Tchaikovsky's Six when i was uh 15 played by the new york philharmonic in royce hall with leonard bernstein conducting and sitting behind me was michael jackson
0: whoa whoa so we got to stop here for a second that's a crazy (laughs) that's one of the craziest answers ever so michael jackson was just sitting right behind you and you're watching a concert with bernstein
1: yeah, well, I love Tchaikovsky Six at this time, and I was a major Bernstein fan and a huge New York Philharmonic fan because I was watching them on TV on the weekends uh when they had their live shows. And uh the the second half, this was for, for the second half specifically. Uh the Concertmaster came out, then Tune the Orchestra, then Bernstein came out, and then there is all this like kind of hubbub and shh and wait, wait, and wait. And they waited till everybody, including Bernstein, was in place. And then Michael Jackson came and sat down behind my dad and I. And then the, the concert started. And it was it was so good. It was one of the most amazing performances of Tchaikovsky 6 I've ever, ever
0: heard. So that was like a culmination of amazing things, and Just, the, just the, the the situation was surreal and the music was surreal and all,
1: everything just at once. All surreal. And the best thing is you have the entire orchestra and Bernstein like turning around and looking to see Michael Jackson come and walking in Royce Hall at UCLA.
0: <laughs> that's just, wow. That's, uh, that's why I love this lightning round. I don't know how I would have drawn that answer out of you any other way. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. So, uh... But Before that, much before, what was your first musical memory?
1: My first musical memory was when I was very, very little, maybe two or three. My daycare uh, was in a dance studio. My mom was a professional ballet dancer, and they had live pianists that would do the rehearsals. So she would bring me as a toddler, and I'd sit next to the piano, and uh, like kind of where the page turner would be sitting. And, Mm -hmm. and I remember hearing Chopin, Chopin and Bach and Bach and Chopin and Bach and Chopin and Bach over and over and over again. I could recognize it on the radio, uh, even at that age.
0: What is a book that you'd recommend to the Clarinet audience?
1: Oh, Breathology. Oh, wow. I make all my students at Rice buy that book and, um, I'm trying to spread the word. You know, Erin Fung? I do. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, I think she's stole my copy of it but it's an amazing book amazing book you get it on amazon it's usually sold out it, it'll it'll change the way you think of how you breathe
0: um who's it by
1: oh a, uh, a name i cannot pronounce um
0: but it's readily available on amazon or something like that
1: yes and i got turned on to this because okay. when i was working in fiji i would free dive for um recreation in addition uh, and the people I was, I was working with, they were amazing spear fishermen, and they could hold their breath for two minutes. And I learned uh, a lot of techniques then and heard about uh, this book, Breathology. So uh, it, was, it was a life-changing experience, and that book really uh, encapsulates a lot of the philosophies.
0: That's amazing. I'll have to check it out. Maybe I'll add it to the Clarity Book Club reading list here. It's so,
1: so good. It well, is such a great book.
0: Well, thank you, Richie, so much for coming on the show today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we depart? Oh, I I don't know. F- follow me on Instagram. You could
1: see my uh, my crazy French bulldog and her crazy antics. She's a sweetie. And um,
0: <laughs> what's your handle?
1: Uh, Richie Holly on Instagram. Just just at Richie Holly. Just yeah, just Richie Holly. And um, subscribe to my YouTube channel because there's uh, at the end of the summer a couple of new vlogs going to be coming out that I've been working on. Uh, one one about Mark Jacoby and the other one about the development of this new mouthpiece.
0: And you mentioned to your website's going to get a little bit of a revamp. So you can find that at richieholly.com. And I'll put a link to everything we talked about today in the show notes. So thank you so much, Richie, for coming on the podcast. And I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Sean.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes can be found at ClareNeat.com slash 90. That's the number nine zero. Be sure to hit subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or uh, Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. That helps new listeners discover the show. And also, I want to remind you to join the email mailing list for Clarinet. You can do this by going to clarinet.com, scrolling down all the way to the bottom, entering your email address, and clicking on subscribe. This way you'll get access to not only episodes as they're released, but also special coupons and other offers and uh, announcements that I send out about four to six times a month through that mailing list the clarinet podcast is brought to you by the backers on patreon thank you so much to all who support the show and it's also brought to you in part by Dedario woodwinds don't forget to check out their new don't blow it trivia show by following them on instagram you can find a link to this at clarinet.com in the menu bar also don't forget to try their new reserve clarinet reads at your local music store or you can pick up a box online by heading to clarinet.com slash I'd also like to thank Megan Taylor, who's been doing the copywriting for the Clarinet podcast, and Brian Shaples, who's been doing most of our editing, although I did get my hands dirty, uh, so to speak, and edit today's episode myself. The Clarinet podcast is produced in Calgary, Alberta, Canada by me, Sean Perrin, and the music at the start and end of the show is performed by Michael Lowenstern. Thank you so much, Michael, for letting us use that music on the show. And that's it for today's episode. I look forward to seeing you next time for more of what's new and neat for clarinet on the Clarinet podcast. Thank you so much for listening.